this is actually one, I think one of the most fascinating projects I've ever taken in my many decades as a historian. Um, I was, I've been commissioned by the New Zealand Red Cross to write the history of the National Society and as Neil indicated, my previous history, um, record in, in terms of commissioned history was through the children's health camps movement, the history of that body, and more recently a team project um, that was part of the Johns Hopkins Comparative Non-Profit Sector Project, um, working with um, the Ministry of Social Development and Statistics New Zealand, um, which was an interesting exercise, and for me as an academic historian, um, was uh, it ticked all the boxes for what we're expected to do as academic historians. It brought in external money, big, big ticks, tick in a university context. Um, it was, it had international connections, international collaborations, it was interdisciplinary, and it was undertaken on a team basis. Um, for me, I think it wasn't an entirely, though, satisfying project. Um, and that I was having to work around some very tight field guides and questions that weren't necessarily, I think, appropriate to the New Zealand context. However, it was an interesting exercise. So um, when the Red Cross history came up, it was a really, um, really timely project for me. I'd been in a management, academic management role at Massey for nearly five years and really only managing to do research by going to my desk at six in the morning before I uh, started out at Massey at night, you know, my day job. Um, so when the Red Cross project came up, I decided I'd had enough of academic life and I would become a full-time um, contract historian. And the advantage for the Red Cross, Andrew, is that you didn't have to pay the university 100% overheads on a professorial salary. So. <laughs> but um, there's, I think there's usually certain understandings of an institutional history, and I think the branch has done very well. And and shaping some of those expectations and, and encouraging a more lively presentation, I think, too, of um, institutional histories through some of the contracts that it's supervised. But usually you're, you're looking at the framework of the organisation itself over time. You're interested in certain key moments, um, including the foundation of the organisation, which, as I found with the Red Cross, isn't actually necessarily clear-cut. You're interested in leaders and leadership changes. You're interested in membership Often um, some of the buildings in which activity took place, particularly if they've got a you know, public profile and people are recognisable. But as an academic historian, I was also found myself interested in some of the broader themes that are coming up, and many of them relate to my own past um, research experiences. So I was interested to see how they played out in a particular national and local context. Because in the case of the New Zealand Red Cross, we've got an example of a transnational organisation which in New Zealand emerged within a very much an imperial framework, um, but operated in these minutely local contexts, as I'm finding out. Um, so it embraces you know, the, the iconographic wartime sock knitter about whom I'll talk a bit more, the home nursing class, neighbourly, socially caring, schoolroom uh, pen pals, as well as the domains of high diplomacy, um, humanitarian law, and relationship between the voluntary sector and nation states. And the New Zealand Red Cross has been engaged in a huge range of activities, sometimes initiating these activities too, and then um, sometimes they've been taken over by the state or by other bodies. And it first had some kind of institutional presence in New Zealand in the First World War. So the challenge is to acknowledge its breadth um, while 
um, avoiding superficiality and sometimes to resist my own inclinations to drill deeply and to engage in debate with other historians because I don't think an institutional history, and you may disagree, Neil, is quite the place to be involved in, in picky dialogue with other historians and what they have or haven't th- uh, um, done. But you do, on the other hand, need to be aware of those debates and perhaps footnote them or whatever. So... Um, with an institutional history, you know, I need to be moving briskly on to a centenary in, 19, in 2015, though, as I said, um, foundation moments aren't necessarily that straightforward. So what I want to do is to pick up some of the um, key themes in the book, bearing in mind, uh, uh, however, that my research is ongoing. Um, I bo- by no means completed it, and I've especially got a lot, lot more to do on the last 30 years or so. And that's always the most challenging bit to write about as well. It's always the bit that the employers are most interested in. I understand the, um, the, Australian, the historian of the Australian Red Cross found that the only chapter they really engaged with was the one that covered the last 10 years, and they wanted her to rewrite that. Um, otherwise, um, she didn't, wasn't even sure they'd read the rest of it. But fortunately, in the New Zealand Red Cross... Um, we do have people who are interested and knowledgeable about the past and that's been demonstrated by the very fine shape in which their own National Office archive is in. So that's always really nice and I've found in doing some interviews too, I've uh, talked to some people who've got a really good sense of change over time and and the different ways in which the um, Red Cross has reshaped itself. So just to um, clarify what we mean by the Red Cross... um, because not everyone's clear that uh, there are these are different bodies. You've got the International Committee of the Red Cross, based in Switzerland, um, formed in 1863. You've got what was the League and is now the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, uh, founded in 1919. And then you've got the National Societies. And New Zealand was formally recognised by government um, as uh, a Red Cross society, a National Red Cross Society, um, in over 1931-32, really 19. So um, these are not quite the same entities, but they all come under that umbrella of the Red Red Cross and its very famous flag, which, um, incidentally, because someone asked me at a recent talk, is the. Uh, Swiss flag reversed. Uh, it was a compliment to the um, founder of the Red Cross, who was a Swiss businessman. Um, just quickly on some of the early chronology, because um, I talked about the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, and every organisation has its foundation story, and I'll talk a bit about that shortly, but um, Throughout this chronology, there's certain themes that I think tell us a little bit about New Zealand. So even though um, New Zealand doesn't have its own national body until, well, as a form of uh, a branch of the British Red Cross, First World War, and National Society in 1931, there's interesting stuff about this early period in terms of the knowledge of the Red Cross in New Zealand, the nature of battle reportage, um, the importance of war correspondence and how the Red Cross was depicted in New Zealand. Um, 
so that, that in itself is quite an interesting story. And what you often see, and again, it's in, within this imperial framework, that the Red Cross is actually used as a means of um, demonising the enemy as much as anything. So there's constant reporting of how um, the enemy uh, disregarded the neutrality of the Red Cross or fired on the Red Cross ambulances or such like. And this happens also um, very much if you read newspapers in the First World War. Um, so the Red Cross, there's quite an interesting literature too about why countries in Europe signed up to the Red Cross so quickly. Um, you've got the first Geneva Convention being signed in 1864 by the representatives of 12 countries. By the end of 1868, a further 10 states had signed up and um, a much larger number by the start of the First World War. But one of the arguments is that you, it, it's an indication of the militarisation of charity and that you've got nation-states, the nature of warfare is changing. Um, you've got conscript armies, you've got taxation of civilians to support warfare, and you have, uh, countries have to be seen to be supporting an organisation that's going to um, care for the welfare of uh, soldiers. So there's quite an interesting um, literature around that. Um, as I said before, the League of Red Cross Societies established 1919, and what, why is that, that's important is that the Red Cross movement starts to find a place for itself in peace. It's no longer an organisation simply caring for sick and wounded soldiers, but it starts to lead an international campaign, particularly based on the battle against disease. So in New Zealand, you've got post-war health campaigns, you've got the formation of the Junior Red Cross, and this whole context of youth internationalism and concern about child welfare. And I've noted there some of the um, developments in the interwar period. And for me, the interesting question there is why and how in different countries an organisation like the Red Cross finds a new kind of space within the constellation of social services. What are its competitors? Um, that includes government agencies and um, other voluntary organisations. And what space can the Red Cross claim? And because the New Zealand Red Cross had a rather problematic beginning, this space was increasingly constricted. So in many other countries, the Red Cross ran public, hosp ran public hospital, charitable hospitals. Um, it trained nurses. It um, ran child welfare institutions, homes for crippled children. Um, it, it, by the end of the first, second, yeah, by, by the beginning of the Second World War, it was getting into blood transfusion services. That didn't happen in New Zealand because many of those spaces were already occupied by the state. Uh, just to go back to the foundation story, because as I said, that's I think this is always an interesting um, side of any organisation's history. And with the health camps movement, they had a, um, you know their, their foundation story that was trotted out on lots of occasions. And the Red Cross one is with um, businessman Henri Dunant, who kind of stumbled across um, the Battle of Solferino in 1859 and was appalled at the. Um, the suffering he saw uh, and wrote a memoir about it which is quite graphic and, and almost gut-wrenching in its detail but where he recommends the idea of uh, getting trained civilians together to go and assist the wounded uh, on, on the battlefield. Um, 
not an uncontroversial idea, and someone like Florence Nightingale was actually quite opposed to the idea of civilians being uh, put into this role when she felt um, the army should be the ones who are taking responsibility for the medical care of their soldiers. Now, this story um, has been... Is, is one that's constantly promulgated and has been put into more modern formats like um, this uh, cartoon version which runs to several pages. This is just the first page um, from the Federation and a um, uh, New Zealand school resource from the 1970s called Good Thinking Henry. So he said a bright idea. And that was where the education department actually seconded a school teacher to the Red Cross to work on aspects of international humanitarian law and how they could be translated into the social studies syllabus. So just one of the many examples of the way that government and the Red Cross have interacted in a mutually supportive way over time. And just quickly again on the um, chronology, uh, World War II is immensely important to the New Zealand Red Cross, a, a huge increase in the number of sub-centres, expansion, further expansion of the Junior Red Cross, of the voluntary auxiliary detachments, and but a, a somewhat troubled relationship particularly with the Patriotic Fund and issues around fundraising where government's keeping a much tighter control over um, voluntary funding uh, in wartime than happens in many other countries. Post-war, the Red Cross gets into refugee relief and resettlement, and of course we've seen them, now you've got, they've got contracts for, um, I understand, for settler, uh, for, for a um, new, new settler uh, resettlement. Um, heavily involved in the Food for Britain campaign, and there's some lovely stories there about all the barrels of fat that were sent over to the UK and the great delight with which they were received. Um, Ex huge expansion of international activity from the 1960s on, particularly in Southeast Asia, increasing social work roles, Meals on Wheels, good neighbour schemes, so um, an even bigger role in the local communities. And then from the 1980s on, um, having to grapple with many of the issues that the non-profit sector is having to deal with anyway, and I'll touch on some of those as we move through. Now, for me, who, uh, I started out um, as a historian of women in New Zealand, so I've been quite interested in the question of whether this was a women's organisation, and at various times in the Red Cross's history that has been a matter of some contestation. Um, certainly a lot of the early iconography around the movement really it, it involves images of women, and particularly of the Red Cross nurse, or the VAD, more strictly, so the Voluntary Auxiliary, more um, specifically. And the mantra that was associated with this very famous poster by the American Alonzo Foringer, 1918. Um, so the idea of the Red Cross as the greatest mother in the world was one that had quite a long purchase on the public imagination. But you can see there that already the remit of the Red Cross in that wording is going beyond simply helping soldiers in wartime. It's claiming a much wider um, remit for the Red Cross in terms of feeding thousands, warming thousands, healing thousands from her store. And one of the things that's interesting <coughs> in organisations is to see the slogans that are used over time. And I'm going to have to uh, investigate this a bit further, I think, um, We've had slogans like neither like nor equal nor parallel, whereby the Red Cross is claiming its distinctiveness in comparison with other organisations. 
In the 1980s, it was always needed, always there. More recently, um, you'll need to fill me in on this at some stage, Andrew, but I have come across Improving the Lives of Vulnerable People. Is that the current one, or have we got a more recent one? Um, Fairly current. Yeah. There's often more slogans as as an organisation develops. Um, After the war, the greatest mother in the world had to become still the greatest mother in the world just to show that the organisation wasn't going to peter out simply because the war had ended. And on the right-hand side, we see that that image of the Red Cross nurse, the monolithic Red Cross nurse, protecting um, the the protective embrace um, is still... um, being used in the Second World War. But notice the difference. On the left-hand side, she's holding a crippled, to use the terminology of the day, a crippled child in one arm, and her other is protectively over um, what look, appears to be old people and certainly a woman, and likewise children um, in the World War II one. Um, interesting there, the protective nurse, female image, but note the language too. Um, essential sacrifice, talking about the sacred cause, and the word, but the wording at the top is referring to Florence Nightingale, not Henri Dunant. And often um, in uh, the British world, um, the Red Cross is the national societies are referring <coughs> just as much to Florence Nightingale as they are to Dunant. So to go back to some of these headings. Was it a women's organisation? And certainly I know the Australian history is very much written in terms of the Red Cross as a women's organisation. And so Melanie Nolan Oppenheimer has um, done that particularly forcefully. Women certainly predominated among its membership. By the 1930s, the president, a male, as was usually the case, um, estimated that there were 10 women members for every man. And often the Red Cross had to contend with the view that it was really just a women's knitting circle. Um, And the activities, apart from the emergency response area, tended to be overwhelmingly female. Um, The war helps to gain a wider membership, particularly World War II, and um, through the emergency response um, side of things, the organisation of efforts on behalf of prisoners of war, and the business side of the activities is usually being run by men. And then after the war, you've got many returned servicemen signing up as well, though I understand often their active contribution was more to send their, force their kids to belong to the Junior Red Cross and send them along there. But men did predominate among the office holders, at least until the recent past, and the men's detachments were hugely resistant to being seen as part of a women's organisation. So there was a huge stoush during World War II when the Women's War Service Auxiliary, um, some of you might might know, was charged with getting all the women's organisations together and counting their membership, and um, government gave them that role of of organising women's voluntary effort. And um, the Red Cross was hugely resistant to this and put enormous pressure on government, very irate, saw it as a huge insult that a women's organisation, and one was a Johnny-come, oh, not exactly Johnny-come lately, but um, a recent organisation be, should be seen as having any sort of control over the Red Cross membership. Um, and the government eventually distances itself from the whole issue and says it was a result of over-enthusiasm on the part of the Women's War Service Auxiliary and um, allows the Red Cross to sort of go its own, pretty much its own merry way. Not quite, though. 
Um, one of the issues I'm looking at is, is um, about some of the women leadership, and here we have Agnes Lady Wigram on the left and Estelle Lady Myers on the right, um, because I think the class element was stronger in the early years of the Red Cross, especially um, th- those members whose who's link with the Red Cross dated back to the First World War, and more so in some parts of the country than others. So I know Jeff Rice is here and he'll be able to vouch, I think, for the class element in the North Canterbury area in terms of the Red Cross. Um, but these were women who were very active in their own right. They weren't, simply weren't figureheads. They worked extremely hard. Um, in Wellington, we also had um, Jacobina Lady Luke, the wife of the Mayor of Wellington, and they were active and very um, played a very forceful role in the leadership of the Red Cross for most of their lives. I mean, Agnes Wigram was she jo- she was active in the Red Cross in the First World War. She was still turning up to, to Red Cross meetings in, in Christchurch about four months before her death in the late 1950s. Um, she did a, a huge amount um, in wartime. It was said she her knitting needles. Here we're getting to the sock knitters again. Her knitting needles were never out of her hands. In World War II, she was producing one camouflage net a day and all this sort of thing. So um, they were not just organisationally active. They they set quite a a model of achievement and activity uh, in their local branches. Um, I think in World War II, you get a more varied membership, especially a lot of the young women who join up as VAs. But even there, particularly, say, in the Transport Corps, um, you had to have access to a motor vehicle, so if Daddy was wealthy enough to own a, own a vehicle, you could um, wear the uniform of um, the transport auxiliary. And, of course, the, one of the interesting things I'm, I'd love to dig deeper into, and I probably won't, though it may be a little box, is the whole issue of uniforms in, in the voluntary sector. And I've got, I'm writing a chapter now about the Red Cross and uniform, and that includes nursing uniforms and what distinguishes a VA from a real nurse, as well as um, the volunteers' uniforms. Because if you were wealthy enough, you could get your uniform tailored, of course. If you didn't have money, you couldn't afford the dress uniform, and that was a disincentive to joining up. And so the Red Cross did try to have some for hire. But uniforms could actually themselves, you know, cause these kinds of in, in inequalities or were markers of inequality within a movement. And there's a lovely description in World War II of when um, Lady Mountbatten comes wearing, the, actually she's wearing the St John uniform, and um, Lady Park comes wearing the Red Cross, British Red Cross uniform, and all the media commenting on how beautifully tailored their uniforms were and how... Um, they showed that you didn't need to look dowdy in uniform. But, of course, they could afford to have their uniforms tailored, and Lady Mountbatten had to apologise for the fact that she was wearing nylons and to explain that they were a gift and she only wore them on special occasions. Uh, Had she been an ordinary member of the Red Cross, she would not have been allowed to wear uh, nylons, and she would not have been able to wear her hat at the rakish angle on which she was complimented. Let alone, I suspect, um, the case of Lady Park, uh, they were quite intrigued in the Otago Red Cross at her mauve rinse through her hair. So, feminine, they were icons of femininity in uniform. Um, just uh, to go back to the female sock knitters, I mean, the whole issue of gender is interesting, and I've, that image there shows 
The woman on the left is the leader of the Red Cross Transport Corps, who, as I said, were, did regard themselves as quite an elite because they had access to motor vehicles. In the middle is the director of the Red Cross VAs, who always had to be a trained nurse, and there's a whole interesting issue there about the relationship between the Red Cross and the nursing profession and their genuflection, really, to the nursing profession. And on the right, the leader of the men's, v, uh, men's, men's detachments. And you can see the uniforms are based on military uniforms, and they spent hour upon hour upon hour debating things like, you know, kinds of buttons and chevrons and, and you know, all the details of these uniforms. It was quite a distraction. And one, I think, quite significant marker of change in the Red Cross is when the, these World War II-type uniforms are replaced by a more civilian type of uniform, which is hugely unpopular, I might say, among the VAs. But it was also a sign that the VAs were on their way out. And the other um, is when the men's detachments have to join with the women's and in some cases come under a woman commandant and that caused the men's numbers to drop away. They just virtually melted away at that point. Um, the sock knitters, as I said, I think that, that's a really interesting one, this idea about knitting. It's, it has become a sort of icon of women's war work. And Bruce Gates' article, for example, famous article on the forgotten sock knitter, about the emotional labour that's involved in knitting as part of the war effort. And... Um, as I said, someone like, even someone like Lady Wigram um, was very busy with her hands and um, very active. And it's a, it becomes almost a production line thing in World War II. You could take one of those knitting patterns today and you know, knit almost exactly the same sort of thing. Um, to get around the sort of mismatched socks and things like that, they become quite rigid in the way you're meant to knit things. The big problem is the quality of wool available in wartime. So a lot of the socks that were knitted, were knitted with such poor quality wool because of rationing that the soldiers couldn't wear them very long for marching in, apparently. Um, and what's interesting, too, is, I mean, I think we can take this into the present, and I find it interesting going around branches today where knitting still goes on. It's still a core activity. But in a way, the recipient... The, it's the knitters themselves are the objects of welfare, if you like. So in some branches, you've now got women in their 90s for whom their only social outlet is going to the Red Cross knitting circle. And they knit endless piggy squares, which they cannot stitch up. And no one else wants to spend the time knitting up heavy batches of piggy squares. Um, they can't knit um, a lot of the fluffy wools because if they make a mistake, they can't unravel them and re-knit them. So, in a way, the knitting circles... I mean, volunteering is always... There's always something in it for the volunteer anyway, but I suspect in some of these activities the um, balance has gone a little bit the other way, if you like. So some quite interesting stuff there, I think, around those, those lower levels of um, Red Cross activity, which links up with the broader history of volunteerism and... Um, the kinds of spaces available in an organisation for volunteers at different times in its history, which was something we, we, we wrote about quite a bit when we did the Johns Hopkins project, um, because one of the complaints in the modern time, of course, is many volunteers feel devalued. Um, you know, their, own, their service are only accepted if they commit to doing 40 hours training or something, and they go, or they go along to make a cup of tea and find themselves responsible for, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of dollars and so on, So, um, which wasn't quite what they expected. So it links in very much with the history of voluntarism. Uh, the top there we have the North Canterbury um, Meals on Wheels kitchen. Uh, so the Red Cross played an early role in the Meals on Wheels service and sometimes actually cooking the meals, but increasingly they um, cooperated with hospital boards, which did the cooking and the Red Cross did the deliveries, as they still do in many centres. And below we can see a Red Cross delivery. It's a rather charming photo where I think these ladies with those sort of heads looking at the recipients and the the, one of the, the woman at the front who's receiving the, the Meals on Wheels is obviously not too keen on having a photo taken and looking at the camera in a somewhat challenging way. Um, so there's a whole lot of these issues which are not distinctive to the Red Cross, and I found it with the health camps movement, and I think if you write any history of a non-profit organisation, most of those points there would, would be relevant. Um, increasing numbers of paid staff, particularly at the centre, um, the big issue comes at the centre, for example, when, say, the, the director of the VADs, who is always a trained nurse and is initially um, a retired director of nursing from the Department of Health, uh, she's followed by a retired hospital matron, she's followed by a trained nurse who has um, been at home looking after her father who has died, but she essentially comes more from the volunteer line within the movement. But the next one has to be paid because they can't get anyone to do it for free. And then you've got the organisation trying to work out things like employment conditions in the 19, early 1950s and superannuation, and um, that person eventually resigns um, with a certain amount of ill feeling. But um, things like employment conditions and the balance between paid staff and volunteers and who, the, the channels of communication too become issues. There's also the re relations with other voluntary organisations and Red Cross in its first 30 years or so was in huge conflict with St John which had a presence in New Zealand that dated back to the 1870s. The Red Cross uh, was a much newer organisation and claimed to be a superior organisation because of its it wasn't simply um, a British organisation, but it had these international connections. And for a while, St John claimed to be a Red Cross society until the international movement made it quite clear that it couldn't be a Red Cross society because you had to um, be associated with the Christian church and the Red Cross was international and <coughs> non-sectarian. So... Um, there was a difference, and the Red, Red Cross bodies could not be St John organisation. Sorry, the other way around, St John could not be a Red Cross organisation. Um, and relations with government is an interesting one that I could talk an awful lot about, but <coughs> um, as I indicated before, in New Zealand in the early years, Government activism was so well established, and, and particularly in areas like health, where the Red, that the Red Cross internationally was expanding into, that in the 1920s, the New Zealand Red Cross was reporting back to the international body that because the public health field had really been stitched up by the Department of Health, um, there wasn't a terrible amount that the Red Cross nurses could do on that front, other than run first aid classes and take an educational role. And today, of course, organisations like the Red Cross are having to compete with the private sector as well as other voluntary organisations and um, the state. 
But what the Red Cross has always had, and we saw that at the slide at the front, is that instantly recognisable emblem. It's, got, it's always had tremendous power, so much that other bodies have often wanted to claim it, and there's a lot of law um, around the circumstances in which the Red Cross can be actually be used. And there's been some debate and contestation with government as well about uh, the, the spaces in which the national society could use the emblem. But in terms of, quote, brand recognition, to use modern terminology, the Red Cross is a very, very powerful brand. One of the other themes I'm quite interested in is children's voluntarism. And um, this is actually from... Um, it's just a little drawing that was put around the Junior Red Cross by the um, League of Red Cross Societies in the 1940s. So you see the little girl in her Red Cross uniform in a rather battered-looking world, and the Red Cross girl is the big sister who's holding out her hand to this battered-looking um, world figure. Um, so the Junior Red Cross, again, it's a post-World War I venture, very much part of this whole idea after the world, after the First World War, that I knew there needed to be a better and new society, and that children were the pathway to that better society. So it's not just the Red Cross that tries to use children as a resource. You see a lot of international children's organisations, and even groups like Scouts and Guides, which were founded before the war, draw upon this kind of rhetoric. So the Junior Red Cross. Um, I serve as the motto. Um, it's seen as a training in citizenship and service as well as a means by which um, health issues, uh, health education is progressed. Uh, the Red Cross has a very good relationship with the Department of Education and gets the permission of the directors of education to go into schools during school time, not just out of school hours. The problem being that they also needed the permission of school principals, which wasn't quite so forthcoming. But certainly the directors of education were very positive about this and about the linkage of the Red Cross syllabus with the teaching syllabus in the schools in terms of social studies and health, health education. And I think it was Clarence Beebe who said he was one of the most bandaged men in New Zealand because every time he went into a school, the Red Cross circle would be wanting to you know, put a sling around him or bandage him in some way. Um, so I mean, it's quite interesting how one assesses these sort of children's programs because um, I've been quite impressed thinking about it, how the notion of health that they're putting forward is really, today we're, just, we're regarded as quite holistic, and it is linking up mental and physical health and community involvement as part of a kind of package of well-being, which I think, you know, 20 years or so ago I might have sort of looked a bit askance at it, and some historians had, and they have seen these sort of programs as attempts of, at social control, or in the 1930s there was definitely a co-option of many of these youth organisations into totalitarian regimes. So Caroline Moorhead's history of the ICRC says, you know, by 1939, even as American Junior Red Cross members dispatched little gifts to their pen pals overseas, Red Cross youth societies in Europe were increasingly marching not to the tune of clean teeth and dead locusts, um, because the elimination of locusts is one of the things that was done, or flies, but to the bands of fascist Nazi, Nazi and Nazi youth organisations, all of whom had perceived the vast success of the Red Cross junior membership drive and courted its young members. 
But I think in New Zealand, the, the notion of citizenship that's put forward is one of a much more benign kind. And, and I am struck how, you know, when you look at recent, recent research into youth volunteering, this close correlation that's been identified between early and lifetime enga engagement and voluntary work. And, and these messages of service, responsibility, um, concern for others, I think, seem more laudable. The Red Cross saw youth as a resource rather than a problem. They saw them as active rather than helpless and passive. Um, and, and this education and good health was, was very proactive. Um, and I'm struck at how yeah, a lot of the what seems quite simplistic health teaching is now you know, coming out and getting scientific endorsement and, and it's when children aren't taught these messages that they often face um, quite you know, serious health problems or consequences. So, yeah, I suppose I, I'm re-evaluating a lot of this in a, way, in, in a way that I might, viewing in a way I might not have done 20 or 30 years ago and seeing it as much more positive and laudable. Another area that I'm getting into and I do have to do more work on is the Red Cross role in disaster preparedness and relief. And there's an increasing secondary literature around this, but it's really that the two um, earthquakes, the Hawke's Bay and Canterbury earthquakes, were kind of very, were very significant moments for the Red Cross in New Zealand. And I, I'm going to be very interested to follow through on the Canterbury earthquake. And... Um, the response to that, but the role, role of the Red Cross in disaster relief internationally goes back even prior to the First World War, and um, I think the American Red Cross was heavily involved in responding to the San Francisco earthquake in the 1900s sometime. There was a big earthquake in 1908 at Messina, where there were actually collections in New Zealand. The Greek, um, the Italian community um, was very active there in collecting. Um, and there were interestingly a lot of articles in the press in 1908 about earthquake-proof buildings and places where we should or shouldn't be, be building houses. So uh, there's nothing new about what's going on now. Um, the first Red Cross president, William Collins, um, Dr. William Collins, established a disaster relief fund in 1931. Ironically, um, it was formally set up just two days before the Hawke's Bay earthquake and it was the, the trust under which it was formed was so rigid that they couldn't actually release the money to help. But he actually did this prior to the Hawke's Bay earthquake. Um, and then you've got the Red Cross response to the Hawke's Bay earthquake, which is presented differently according to whether you read Department of Health sources, Red Cross sources or St John sources. So the Red Cross has particularly the Wellington Red Cross um, organising and, and having sending this vast um, convoy of um, cars and trucks over to Hawke's Bay by, you know, about 10 in the evening overnight. Um, St John's story says that they got all the trucks and cars together and the Red Cross secretary simply came along with a whole stack of Red Cross symbols and slapped them on the side and <laughs> sent them off under the Red Cross label. And the health department says if only the Red Cross had been better organised, um, it might have been able to respond, and instead, really, it was the health department personnel who did most of the organising. So it all depends on, on where you're coming from on that one. Um, but the Red Cross did do a lot in terms of welfare response after the earthquake um, and in evacuating, helping to evacuate people, particularly down to Wellington and um, sometimes through to the South Island. 
set up a lodging house for refugees over in Hawke's Bay, did quite a lot of fundraising to assist. And so the Red Cross has always had a very loyal constituency in the Hawke's Bay and some very generous donors in its early days from the wealthy of the Hawke's Bay area. But it was also raised its profile. It accelerated this issue of government recognition. And I think it's also a really interesting insight into the whole international aid issue because it becomes very clear to many New Zealand Red Cross members that they're part of an international organisation at this point. Many of them have been very inwardly focused. Suddenly they find aids coming from places as far afield as Thailand, Egypt, Latvia, India, from a past enemy Turkey, a future enemy Japan. A whole range of countries around the world send money to assist with the um, Hawke's Bay earthquake. So that what Historians sometimes talk about these networks of reciprocity and jeopardy are very much displayed after the Hawke's Bay earthquake and, of course, more recently. In World War II, the Red Cross is big in helping with the emergency precautions scheme. Um, They refuse to help the Home Guard because the Home Guard is seen as a branch of the armed services and the Red Cross doesn't see itself as helping the armed services. Rather, it's there to help the sick and wounded. So they are particularly involved in first aid training and supplying first aid posts for the emergency precaution scheme. Then they're constantly in the records responding, particularly to floods in New Zealand. There's always a flood going on somewhere and the Red Cross is there handing out clothing and um, uh, mugs of soup. And then when the civil defence network starts to be established throughout New Zealand uh, through the local bodies from 1955 on, The Red Cross sees its role in assisting with, um, it's given a role in assisting with first aid and home nursing training. It does uh, have, some of its VAs will be accepted as long as they've got, they're fully trained um, in the casualty sections. But later their key role is is one of clothing distribution, which is a big problem for any voluntary organisation, I can tell you. Um, the whole clothing and donations of clothing is a big difficulty for organisations because a lot of the stuff that's given is totally inappropriate and it's the junk that other people don't want. So most organisations would much rather have money and buy clothing, and particularly if it's to be sent overseas, rather than um, get donations. Um, and there's some lovely... I mean, this is one of the points, too, at which the, the, the voluntary auxiliaries the problem around the voluntary auxiliaries becomes very apparent because um, they are ageing. Many of them joined in World War II. They're often elderly ladies. And there's a lovely photo in one of the annual reports of these ladies on a field cooking course at Burnham Military Camp, which could only be done, apparently, at that one site in the country. So it was about how you cook anywhere in a disaster, but it could only be the course could only be undertaken at Burnham Military Camp. And there they are with their being shown how to make their little mud oven and they're sitting around with their permed hair and their pearls and their high heels on and I think it was becoming very apparent to the Red Cross that in terms of emergency response the um, existing VAs weren't going to hack it and so they start to try to attract youth and in 1917 I think I might have a picture here oh here we've got on the left just the Hawke's Bay earthquake with the Red Cross flag, flag flying, flying and the Canterbury earthquake but the first emergency response vehicle, um, being it's actually at the Red Cross conference in, I think, 1970. It's being driven up the aisle at Cathedral in Christchurch, and um, I think you know all, all the um, sirens going, and they 
rescued someone from up in the pulpit or whatever it was, <laughs> sort of publicity exercise. Um, so they have these emergency response vehicles, and many of them are based like at secondary schools, like Scots College, the idea being that you get senior school pupils, boys, um, who can be trained up because they're young and fit. And it's also a way of luring them into the Red Cross on a longer term by giving them something exciting to do. Um, later on, they move more away from um, heavy rescue into um, welfare support vehicles. So, um, yeah, so there's a really interesting history there to be teased out around the emergency response. And, and somewhere like Wellington, for example, in the 1970s, the Hannah's Fire, the Red Cross is there assisting the firemen with the hoses. It's there with the portable generators when, the dark, when, it, when it gets dark. Um, and lighting. It's providing food and drinks to firefighters and uh, the police. And the fascinating um, document I've come across in the Civil Defence Files at Archives about a simulated exercise at the Nauranga Gorge freezing works had been abandoned by 1977. And the difficulties of mounting an exercise of that kind and making it realistic. So they had the old freezing works. It was probably actually a pretty dangerous site at that time. Whether they'd be allowed to use it now, I don't know. But they, they, have, they had... Their own Red Cross volunteers were quite used to pretending to be um, victims and these big plastic wounds and things that they stuck on. And so that their experienced victims were quite good at this role, but they had to call on a whole lot of inexperienced victims who didn't know how to behave properly in these circumstances and were sort of, those who were sort of meant to be hidden were helpfully waving their arms around to say, here I am, come and rescue me. And, um, and the fire brigade got called out to a scrub fire halfway through, so they weren't much help. The GPs who were meant to turn up forgot, so there was a first aider doing triage and, sent, and had sent just about everyone to the public hospital, and they couldn't get back. And um, they had a car, a wrecked car with a victim in that they were meant to cut open, but they were so keen on administering first aid that they actually just used used the lock and opened the door instead of using their cutting equipment. So the, the difficulties of training people in preparedness for this um, sort of circumstance. Um, just some of the other themes, and I'll, I'll quickly summarise them, because I am quite interested, having recently written about charity fundraising, to see how an organisation like the Red Cross promotes itself and raises funds over time, starting in the case of the Red Cross with the floral motif, the sale of flowers, which has some longevity, initially violets but later red roses, um, a designated day. The Red Cross internationally had what they called Our Day, and it was one of the first organisations to do that on an international basis, right through to the post-war when legacies became a really significant source of income as prisoners of war died and left legacies to the Red Cross. Uh, as, as show their gratitude for how they were treated as prisoners of war, through to more recent um, corporate sponsorship and the idea of people giving from their payroll or from their bank accounts um, and donor relationships. Um, fascinating insights too into the history of nursing and the claiming of the term nurse by professional trained nurses. And even within the Red Cross, you've got this divide between the Red Cross nurse and the VAs, who also wanted to call themselves Red Cross nurses, but increasingly got squeezed out of both the uniform and the title. Um, and the international linkages which come with that, 
The Red Cross role in the history of social work <coughs> is also um, a fascinating story in the expansion of the schemes in which the Red Cross was involved, and I mentioned before Meals on Wheels, and then the history of war and care for sick soldiers. So the Red Cross and its history, its work was often quite heavily divided between peacetime work and wartime work. And, um, but even its wartime role was very quite complex, not just the care of sick and wounded soldiers, both directly and through the provision of funds, uh, its involvement with prisoners of war and what happened locally on that front where the Red Cross censored, for example, relatives' parcels on behalf of the international body just to make sure relatives weren't slipping things in that would cause the whole consignment, whole consignment to be confiscated by the Germans and its role in convalescence and vocational training mostly after World War II. Mm. 